Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 19. Trauma, the Wounded Soul. Part 1. Early Childhood Trauma. The word trauma has had such an extensive career that we may come across it just about everywhere. There is talk of traumas in connection with major social upheavals, acts of war, experiences as a refugee, violent or abusive experiences in the family, even up to election flops or lost sporting events. As is often the case, when a term becomes more widespread, what it actually means becomes blurred beyond all recognition. And, as is often the case, the reason that a term gains currency is that it refers to a very multifaceted phenomena that is difficult to grasp. This begins with the double meaning of the word trauma, for it refers both to the triggering incident, for example a traffic accident, as well as to the psychological consequences for those affected, who after the event suffer a trauma. There are, moreover, a number of mental illnesses that can develop as a result of trauma. One also speaks of so-called trauma sequelae, the best known of which is the so-called post-traumatic stress disorder, which we will hear about in the next episode. So what are we talking about when we talk about trauma? The word trauma comes from ancient Greek and means wound, injury. Originally, in fact, it was used in medicine for physical injuries and is still used that way today. For example, when we speak of cranial cerebral trauma in the case of head injury. Only later, with the growing awareness of psychological processes, was trauma also used to designate injuries that were not necessarily only sustained to the body, but also to the mind. Thus, to begin with, trauma refers to an incident that inflicts a psychological wound. This emphasis is important and helps to clear up a common misunderstanding. The event itself, take for example, the sudden death of a close relative, need not be traumatizing in itself, and the consequences can be very diverse. The event becomes a trauma only once it has penetrated the psychological skin, inflicting a deep psychic wound that does not heal just like that, and this can be different for each person. Whether an incident has a traumatizing effect and triggers a corresponding mental illness depends, among other things, on whether the person affected has the opportunity to cope with the experience. That is, whether he or she has a good social network and people with whom he or she can discuss what happened, as well as how stable his or her mental equilibrium is overall. As to the question of whether a shocking experience will develop into a trauma sequela, the phase immediately following the event is of particular importance. This is why crisis intervention, for example, plays a very important role. Of course, it also depends upon how severe and consequential the event was for the person. Beyond a certain level of severity, nearly everyone's capacity to cope is exceeded. One also speaks of extreme traumatization, such as torture or reoccurring experiences of massive violence or abuse, and nearly everyone, 
to whom such things have happened, suffers a trauma, even if it takes on different forms. Violence that has been deliberately inflicted on us by other people is psychologically more difficult to deal with than, say, violence that originated from natural disasters or accidents. Last but not least, it is decisive how old a person is and in which phase of psychological development they are in when a potentially traumatizing event happens to them. As adults, it is ordinarily no big deal for us if our parents exit the room and leave us alone for a few hours. As a toddler, such situations would be catastrophic and, especially if this reoccurs often, is almost always traumatizing. With regard to child development, Freud used the image of a pinprick, which for the adult animal is harmless, but for the larva, devastating. We are particularly vulnerable at thresholds in our life story, like in childhood, during puberty, the birth of a child, after separations, professional upheavals, or also in old age. Over several episodes of our podcast, we want to look at traumatizations and the psychological consequences that affect people at different stages of their mental development. In this episode, the focus is on traumatizations that affect people at an early age, that is, as young children. Another episode will deal with typical trauma sequelae, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder. As for the connection between traumatization and contemporary history, as well as its sometimes fateful transgenerational consequences, we will deal with that in a third episode. At no other point in time is the mind of a human being so vulnerable and exposed as an infancy. The infant is subject to all kinds of dangers. Hunger and thirst frighten it. It is existentially dependent on others for emotional warmth and protection. It comes into a world full of unknown inner stirrings and outer stimuli, for which it does not yet have a name, and which surge unfiltered into its psyche. The mind of an infant is a little like a skin, which is still very delicate and is thus easily injured. It does not yet know that hunger need not be life-threatening. In its experience, every lack is absolute and existential. For a small child, ultimately the whole world is potentially traumatic, for it has not yet built up a psychological structure that protects it and into which it can organize inner and outer events. To begin with, an infant needs another skin that protects it and gives it security, and that is ordinarily the bond with its parents, the protection, care, and love that it receives from its mother, father, and other people. If an infant receives enough love and is treated sufficiently well, it begins, bit by bit, to form its own psychological skin, which becomes increasingly stable and resilient with the passage of time. Internal stirrings and external incidents no longer frighten it on such a massive scale. He or she eventually finds words and an adequate feeling for what is going on both inside and outside. This psychological structure, our psychic skin, is what holds our ego together, what gives us a sense that we are a whole, safe, capable of trusting the world and other people, 
similar to the way the physical skin protects and holds together our organs, gives our body a shape, and enables contact with the environment which does not hurt and harm us. This psychological skin is also that which trauma penetrates, that trust in the world that can be broken and thus subsequently revoked. One speaks of an early trauma when traumatizations take place in this early phase of development, at an age when the mental structure is still in the making, when trust in the world is just being formed. Frequently, it concerns devastating experiences with one's own parents or within the nuclear family, i.e., traumatizations within the relationships of attachment, which are in fact absolutely necessary for the development of mental structures. Traumatizations at this stage of development can sometimes have massive consequences for the further development of the personality. It is essentially prolonged and reoccurring traumatizations, also known as complex trauma, such as repeated sexual abuse or violence by one's own family, that lead to grave disturbances in psychological development. Often, they are responsible for the development of a borderline personality disorder, which ultimately is nothing more than the development of a mental structure that has been marked by repeated traumatizations, an ego emerging in a state of emergency. In episode 13, we dealt in detail with the emergence of such borderline personality organization. In most cases, it is not only the perpetrator themselves, say a violent father, who plays an important role, but also the way in which those around the child deal with such incidents. It is not uncommon for the devastating events in the family to be kept quiet, more or less willfully overlooked or glossed over, and normalized by other family members, neighbors, and acquaintances. There is sometimes a tendency to spare the perpetrator in order not to have to deal with him in the shameful incidents. Instead, the blame for such unpleasantness is not infrequently shifted onto the person who is least able to defend themselves, the victim, who often enough even takes the blame him or herself. This experience is no less catastrophic for the development of a traumatized child's ego, which internalizes a relationship model in which it is the child who feels guilty for the violence that others inflicted on it, in which they sense that they are the source of the evil that has had such a devastating influence. Not infrequently, the guilt is even reversed in the child's perception, as with the mechanism of so-called identification with the aggressor. The child feels guilty towards the perpetrator while being hateful towards themselves. The psychoanalyst Sando Ferenczi dealt early on with these phenomena and other devastating consequences, such as those caused by sexual violence in childhood. The traumatized child remains, this is one of the fatal peculiarities of early attachment traumas, still dependent on their environment, for example, the abusive parents. The child cannot flee to the police or some other authority, but rather only to the hand that beats it, which leads to massive inner confusions and severe structural disorders in the development of the ego. Hate and love, fear and security, are fused together in a way that has serious consequences. And this is often the doorway to re-traumatization in later stages of life. When, for example, victims of trauma expect protection and love from precisely those who pose the threat of new violence. Psychodynamically speaking, 
The defense mechanism of splitting is unsuccessful. Good and evil cannot be kept apart, and this affects one of the basic functions of the psyche's metabolism, taking in what is helpful and spitting out what is harmful. But early childhood trauma does not always have to lead to a personality disorder. If the extent of the trauma is less severe, or refers only to a certain domain, or if it is a matter of rather isolated events, then the trauma can also be woven into the developing psyche in another way. For example, if the mother of a young child dies in a traffic accident or from an illness, but the family is otherwise stable, other people can treat the child lovingly, and it can grow up cared for. Of course, the loss of the mother inflicts a psychological wound in the child. It is something it cannot understand, process, or integrate that far exceeds the coping abilities of its young soul. But this need not necessarily lead to the formation of a massive structural disorder in personality development. Construction on the psychic house continues, as it were, albeit around a certain area that remains omitted. One also speaks of the encapsulation of a trauma. A certain room in the psychic house, sealed off by thick walls, behind which catastrophic and devastating feelings lurk, a fall into nothingness, while the rest of the psychic house may very well be built solidly. The psychological defense makes sure to avoid any contact with this domain of inner sensitivity even if it means avoiding feelings and emotional closeness altogether. Narcissistic personality development, i.e., a kind of hardened character defense, which is based, among other things, on warding off feelings of dependency by constantly pushing the other person into a dependent situation, can also have its origin here. It is not easy to simply observe trauma in children, especially very young ones. There is no model for how to react to the incomprehensible. Trauma is something over which the child cannot grieve, to which it cannot find any relation at all. It does not shed tears, does not revolt, as is common in the process of mourning. A circumstance that has often led to the erroneous assumption that small children do not pick up on terrible events because they are still too young to understand them. However, it is so eventful precisely because they do not understand. A child's reactions to trauma are often unremarkable. The child falls silent, withdraws, appears absent, or symptoms show up in a completely different place, and eating disorders, behavioral problems in contact with other children, etc., which seem to make no sense and often enough are combated with coercion, pressure, and other pedagogical tools without understanding the real cause. What in reality stirs the child, mind you, is often legible in how the child plays and what the content of their games are. Usually, this is a child already attempting to cope. The situation is similar for adults later. In that late stage of life, the child, say a young man now, may not know anything about the trauma suffered as a child. Nothing appears to remind him of his lost mother. He lives a normal life, can cope with the demands of everyday life. At the same time, he suffers from symptoms that are completely incomprehensible to him. He enters into states of unspeakable suffering, 
unfounded sadness, or catastrophic and nameless fear. Or he develops psychosomatic symptoms. Perhaps he also has difficulty in relating to others, in establishing a living relationship with himself and with his fellow human beings. Everything that happens to a person, but which they cannot psychologically integrate, understand, cope with, or process inwardly, remains of blazing vividness within them. Patients are often astonished that events from childhood still have an effect on everyday life later on. But that was also long ago. What remains unresolved in the mind knows no time. In the encapsulated room where trauma lurks, time stands still. What has happened always remains present, and, if there is a short circuit with conscious perception, will also immediately be experienced as reality which is usually accompanied by panic and massive fears or dissociative symptoms. A phenomenon that is also characteristic of so-called flashbacks and post-traumatic stress disorders, whereby this usually comes along with a hallucinatory, image-like distortion of perception. The fact that a thing in us can become past, that time can elapse in our psyche, presupposes the process of inner integration, separation, and coping. One can also say, a mourning process, which in the case of trauma is exactly what is not possible, because the emotional contact with the trauma is too overwhelming. The trauma is still there. Behind the walls of the capsule, it remains as potent as the radioactive core behind the concrete sarcophagus of a destroyed power plant. And the trauma has also had a hidden effect on inner expectations and interpersonal relationships. The experience that something existentially important can be lost all at once, that there is no guaranteed protection, that security is illusory, has inscribed itself deeply into the psyche, warning against the establishment of any relationships, perhaps even any moment of relaxation or well-being and it plunges into horrific mental states when certain conditions are met, as in just as emotional closeness is formed, for example, at the birth of a child. Life's inner principle, the blueprint of our psychological house, rests on never entering the encapsulated room, for example, never again forming a relationship in which one is existentially dependent, so much in love that one can be so terribly hurt. The trauma is, psychoanalytically speaking, unconscious because it has never reached the conscious mind, i.e., has never been psychologically integrated. Perhaps it is an experience that is still mostly physical, physiological, and affectually unorganized, as is often the case with somatization disorders or panic attacks, that is, an experience which the infant once felt directly and was never transformed into language or thought. The body, however, stores the memory. If this person eventually takes up therapy, it is sometimes not clear at first, even to the therapist, what the problem is, even though he or she may soon develop a sense of the patient's vulnerability at particular junctures. This is all the more so when it comes to traumas that are less rooted in a single and clearly identifiable incident like the death of the mother, even though such conspicuous events 
are often concealed in the family history, marked with shame or fear, and are unknown to the person affected. But there are also traumatic occurrences that are less clear-cut. Separations that occurred too early and for far too long, such as when the child has an extended hospital stay alone, or when they were placed in foster care too early and without a gentle transition. Or, severe emotional abandonment when the parents were absent, or perhaps were physically present but emotionally unavailable, because, for example, they themselves were mentally ill. In therapy, especially in psychoanalysis, it is not uncommon at some point for the analytic work to encounter such unseen trauma, to touch on the encapsulated room, if only because of the growing emotional bond between analyst and analysant, which the therapy is based upon. As with all psychological injuries, it is important to have a gentle approach and to work through it carefully. Many analysants are afraid at the same time, yet also have the desire to work out this knot of traumatic experience. The fear is of being overwhelmed by the feelings and mental pain that are bound up in the encapsulated room. For example, the fear of never being able to stop crying once a single tear has broken through. At the same time, there is a longing for the tears to finally flow. Understanding and integrating such trauma releases an everlasting pain, a burden that the afflicted carries with them. It also fills a gap in one's own experience, which makes one's own identity and one's own emotional world more intelligible, while reopening one's own aliveness and contact to the world. This is not only because one understands something from back in childhood, but above all, because one understands how and why one feels the way one feels today. And with a successful therapy, a mourning process can gradually start. Tears can flow that have never flowed. The trauma can be released from its encapsulation and be subsequently overcome, so that it may in fact become a piece of the past. Not every psychological problem is due to such early traumatic experiences. And the therapeutic work of a serious analyst does not consist of rooting out childhood traumas, or even to present them to the patient as an explanatory model for his or her suffering. However, such encapsulated rooms in mental experience are perhaps more common than one might think. Therapeutic work on such early trauma is for both analyst and analysant a highly sensitive act and is at times extremely demanding. That room is sealed off for good reason, and even only going near it usually involves massive tensions and fears, up to and including the feeling of not being able to endure it, of going crazy. All the more important for the therapist to take into account the protective function of the fear, not to break through it with some crash course method. Instead, Within a trusting relationship, a feeling of security should gradually emerge, which provides the patient with the confidence to approach this area of their mental experience without feeling completely helpless and powerless. Such processes need a lot of time, and even an analyst cannot heal all wounds. For depending on the severity of the trauma and, for example, any dissociative symptoms, 
a different therapy approach may be needed first. However, a therapy may succeed in easing the pain enough so that one can live with it. We cannot wipe out all wounds from our history, but it is nevertheless important that we come to terms with this history, for even our wounds make up a part of who we are. This podcast is written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. Translated and read by Solomon Lawrence.